When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you were a kid or a teenager in 1989, no other movie was more anticipated than this iconic 80s flick. The first superhero movie to take the gritty and grounded approach, it was the comic book event of the decade and the film that transformed the campy Cape Crusader into the brooding Dark Knight. So fire up the Batmobile and meet us in Gotham City as Laramie Wells and Ron West join me to discuss Batman from 1989 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Bruce Wayne. And what do you do for a living? <laughs> Lieutenant, is there a six-foot bat in Gotham City? I have given a name to my pain. What are you? I'm Batman. Get those wonderful toys. My life is really ah! complex. Winged freak terrorizes. Wait till they get a load of me. Hello movie viewers and movie lovers, my name is Tim Williams and welcome to the 80's Flick Flashback Podcast. Here we talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980's. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which 80's flick we choose for each episode, we have a lot of fun sharing memories, discussing our favorite scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and follow 80's Flick Flashback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And while you're there, leave us a stellar written review and a five-star rating. You can also support the show by following us on our social media pages. Just search for 80's Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And go ahead and check out our website, 80sflickflashback.com, for more great 80s content. Now, let's jump right into this episode. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome in, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of this very special episode uh, as I've not told the co-host at this point, uh, we think we've talked about it previously, but uh, the day that this is being released on April 1st will be a two-year anniversary from the very first 80s flick flashback podcast that dropped on April 1st, 2020. So happy two-year birthday to the podcast, and what a great way to celebrate with a great movie with two of my favorite people, Mr. Ron West and Mr. Laramie Wells. How you guys doing? 
pretty good, but I'd like to know who is the actual favorite. Yeah. Uh, no, you no have to comment. decide now. <laughs> or we're, we're both out of here. Make a choice now. <laughs> no, both. Okay, moving on. <laughs> so, 89 Batman. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Let's just jump right in. I'll start with Laramie. When did you see Batman for the very first time? I actually have been anticipating this. I think I saw this in theaters. <laughs> I oh, really okay. do, um, which I think is the first time I have ever seen <laughs> the movie we're talking about in theaters. Um, first. Well, well, 89, we got to the end of the decade, yeah, so you're a little, a little older. older than some of the other ones. Yeah. yeah. So how old were you? Uh, uh, what was the exact release date? It was June. So I was eight. I was eight. Okay, yeah, it was it was like mid June, I think. So yeah. that came out. You're eight so years old. Eight. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm I'm pretty sure I saw it in theaters, because uh, like you said, this was one that I think it was one of the first movies that I truly was, you know, hey, I want to see this. You know, this is something mm-hmm. I'm interested in. I want to see this. Um, so I'm pretty sure I did. Uh, I could be wrong, but I do believe I I saw this in theaters. Very cool. All right, Ron, when did you see Batman for the very first time? I absolutely saw Batman in the theater. In <laughs> fact, uh, so 1989, this is the summer right before my senior year of high school. And so me and my buddy Jeff at Titusville High School, uh, he said, hey, you want to go uh, to the movie? I'll pick you up. So he picked me up and went to the movie. Uh, we saw it. We loved it. Uh, like the next day, he called me. He said, hey, you want to go see it again? Mm-hmm. And I said, sure. He picked me up. He had, by that time... Sometime that Saturday morning before he picked me up, he had bought the big Batman sticker for the the cover, like the entire back of his window in the truck and put it on the back of his truck that (laughs) was popular at that time. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, so saw it in 1989. Obviously, if I saw it twice in two days, you know, I was a a big fan and was was hooked. And this is my Batman, Michael Keaton. Right, right. Yeah, this is, we're three for three. I saw this in the theater. This is one of the very few movies, well, I can't say, I mean... I guess as I've gotten older, but like seeing as a kid, like kid and teenager, like I have specific memory of seeing this movie. I remember which theater I was in. I remember sitting like towards the back. I remember parts of the movie and how the audience reacted. So this is very much etched into my memory. And I was a big, I became a big fan. Of course I had the black Batman t-shirt with the yellow logo that seemed like everybody was wearing and <laughs> was hard to find in the stores. Uh, I want to say I had the movie poster. I bought it like Spencer Gifts or wherever you bought posters back then because I don't think they had it at Walmart at that point. But I think I'm pretty sure I had the the poster in my room for a long time too. And I would draw that, the Bat logo, I would draw that pretty much everywhere on anything that I could you know draw on. Because I was big, I was big into art at that point and drawing stuff, so very cool. All right, so Laramie, how long has it been since you've watched it before we were watching it for the podcast? It's actually been a minute. Okay. Um, because as as good as this movie is, it's just not one that I I think I think about um to go. Hey, I want to sit down and watch that. <laughs> so I really couldn't tell you when the last time I saw it was. It, it's been a minute though. I it it's had to have been. A decade, at least. Wow, okay. 
So how many different versions of this do you have on DVD and VHS and LaserDisc? I have two. <laughs> I have two. Okay. Yeah. All right, Ron, what about you? How long has it been since you had watched it? It's been a minute for me as well. Same thing. I, I really liked the movie and early on saw it. And then when the first release on home video, mm-hmm. watched it. Um, but I, it's probably been at least 10 years, I would say, since I've watched it in its entirety. Uh, maybe more like 15. Um, I mean, you catch bits and pieces of it, you know, flipping the channel or something, mm-hmm. come on come in halfway through and, and then watch the second half or, or, or catch the beginning. Um, anytime I've ever switched it and there, and, uh, he's doing the, uh, the museum scene, you know, dancing right. around and, right. the, and the soundtrack. And I always stop and watch that part, but yeah, it's probably been about 15 <laughs> years since I've, since I've seen it in the entirety. What about you? It hasn't been that long. I know I've watched it a couple of times, especially in the last, probably in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, amazingly, this is not something I own. I used to have like all of the, I had the two disc collector's edition DVDs when they had come out. Of course I had the VHS. That was one of the first VHS movies that I ever owned. And I'm pretty sure I got, cause my birthday is in November. I want to say it was, they were releasing it for Christmas. So I don't know if I got it for my birthday or I got it between my birthday and Christmas. Uh, but I remember watching it on VHS a lot. Uh, but I remember having the the DVD for a long time before I got rid of my DVDs like an idiot. Uh, but uh, but like I've I've seen it on like the the cable either cable or one of the streaming channels. I'll typically say I'm going to watch all four. You know, like I typically do with any any kind of franchise, and I'll start with the first one, then I'll make it like halfway through Batman Returns, and then I'm. I'll watch the third one like three or four months later, and I never get to the fourth one, uh, Batman and Robin. But we're not talking about those movies. We're talking about this one. So, Anybody else have the VHS, Ron? I, absolutely. I think I still have the VHS. <laughs> and um, I had a friend of mine that I'm I'm pretty sure, if memory serves me correctly, had the Laserdisc oh, wow. uh, uh, version wow. of this. Yeah, exactly. Um, that we, uh, w- we were very excited when he got it and went over and watched Say that's one thing I, I've I've never owned. I do not own any laser disc. Yeah. Yeah, I never did either. I remember like seeing them in the store and not really knowing what they were. And then I think one of my friends had one, but we never watched anything on it. Like I think I remember, maybe we started something like he showed it to us one day, but it was only that one time. So I've never actually seen a movie on laser disc, but I used to see the laser discs in the store for the brief, you know, time they were selling them. Now, I've seen something on Laserdisc cuz I remember I remember it from school. Okay. I remember we watched something off of Laserdisc. Uh but yeah, my only connection is and this is completely random, completely <laughs> side. Well, it's an 80s movie. Um the commentary for Spaceballs. Okay. Um Mel Brooks is actually Talking about the fact that it's being recorded for the laser disc. Oh, okay. <laughs> so even though it's on the DVD as well, but right? He's specifically mentioning that it's for the laser. Well, disc. I guess that's probably where you know the special features was more at least a commentary because I didn't hear about yeah. those until DVDs. But I guess the laser disc might have been the precursor to that, and they were doing that for those as well. So, 
how technology has changed. And now, these messages. Comic books have been around for almost a century, and in the last two decades, we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. Coming soon to a cell phone near you. A show for all the manly men out there. Where guys talk about their favorite movies and what they can teach us about being a man. Featuring the coolest guests. Murder somebody is not like killing an ant. The most gratifying laughs. It's Tombstone, what can I say? (laughs) (laughs) A fresh take on movies like you've never heard before. This will be the thing that gets written on his proverbial tombstone. We aren't here to criticize the movies you love, but to praise them for how they apply to our lives as husbands, fathers, and really all men in general. So buckle your seatbelts, because Manly Movies is coming your way on March 31st. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast catcher. And remember, man up. All right, well, let's jump into story origin and pre-production. Um, I'm try, I'll try to make this brief. <laughs> it is kind of a somewhat of a long story because it took 10 years for this movie to get made, basically. But, Laram, if you want to jump in with any uh, notes that you have or Ron, anything you found in your research, be sure to jump in. So, Yes, sir. In the late 70s, Batman's popularity was waning, although the TV show was still airing in syndication. Producers Benjamin Milnicker and Michael Uslan purchased the film rights of Batman from DC Comics on October 3rd, 1979. I know Laramie's been talking a lot about uh, Michael Uslan in his Swamp Thing series on moving panels, correct? Yep, because he, he acquired them both at the same time. Yes, and they just gave him Swamp Thing, right? He, he talked them into just giving them Swamp Thing. <laughs> and they made Swamp Thing first. What a, yep. a brilliant... But we'll kind of we'll see why. So it was Uslan's wish to make the definitive, dark, serious version of Batman the way Bob Kane and Bill Finger had envisioned him in 1939. A creature of the night stalking criminals in the shadows. Uslan was unsuccessful with pitching Batman to various movie studios because they wanted the film to be similar to the campy 1960s television series. Of course they did, which is why it didn't work. Uh, a disappointed Usland then, then wrote a script titled Return of the Batman to give the film industry a better idea of his vision of the, for the film. Usland later compared its dark tone to that of the successful four-part comic book The Dark Knight Returns, which his script predated by six years. In November 1979, producers John Peters and Peter Goober joined the project. Melnicker and Usland became the executive producers. The four felt it was best to pattern the film's development after that of the successful Superman movie in 1978. Uslan, Milnicker, and Goober pitched Batman to Warner Brothers, the studio behind the successful Superman film franchise. Warner Brothers decided to accept and produce Batman, hoping for another successful comic book adaptation. Anything you want to add so far? No, you got it down. I mean, all right. Yeah, because <laughs> that's the thing is. You know, people talking about the dark nature and you know, Tim Burton, he made it too dark and all that. But that, you mm-hmm. go back 
Bob Kane and Bill Finger's original Batman mm-hmm. was dark. I mean, right. he also right. he carried a gun. Uh, he <laughs> killed people. Like right. Yeah, it wasn't until the fifties, um, you know, a decade at, into Batman's run, that all of a sudden it started into the campiness, mm-hmm. uh, which the television show uh, reflected. But, but no, this was going back to what Batman truly was, and yeah, it was right there at the same time that Frank Miller is starting to take over the comic. And again, yeah, I mean, you kind of said it, but just to reiterate, a lot of people think it was influenced by Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns, but I think only two issues of Dark Knight Returns had even been released by the time this movie movie comes out, which means mm-hmm. they were writing the script even before uh, the, the comic was released. So, yeah, not really much of an influence there. So you are looking more at older, you know, classic Batman, the you know, Bill mm-hmm. Finger, Bob Kane Batman was really more influential. Gotcha. All right, so Superman co-writer Tom Mankiewicz, did I say it right? Mankiewicz? Close enough. Close enough. Completed a script titled The Batman. Interesting title there from what we've uh, seen recently. Uh, he finished that script in June of 1983, focusing on Batman and Dick Grayson's origins with the Joker and Rupert Thorne as villains and Silver St. Cloud as the romantic interest. Mankiewicz took inspiration from the limited series Batman Strange Apparitions, written by Steve Englehart. The Batman was then announced in late 1983 for a mid-1985 release date on a budget of $20 million. Originally, Mankiewicz had wanted an unknown actor for Batman. He wanted William Holden for James Gordon, David Niven as Alfred Pennyworth, and Peter O'Toole as the Penguin, whom Mankiewicz wanted to portray as a mobster type with low body temperature. (laughs) But Holden passed away in 1981 and Niven in 1983, so this would never come to pass. Uh, Over the next couple of months and year, a number of filmmakers were attached to his script, including Ivan Reitman and Joe Dante. Reitman's version would have cast Bill Murray as Batman and Eddie Murphy as Robin. Yeah, yeah, not a good, not a good look at all. (laughs) Even though I love both of them and Ivan Reitman, that is... That is the one comedy I did not want to see. Uh, So nine rewrites were performed by nine separate writers. Most of them were based on strange apparitions as well. However, it was Mankiewicz's script that was still being used to guide the project. Due to the work they did together with the film Swamp Thing, Wes Craven was among the directors that Melnicker and Uslan considered while looking for a director. So after the financial success of Pee-wee's Big Adventure in 1985, Warner Brothers decided to hire Tim Burton to direct Batman. Burton had his then-girlfriend, Julie Hickson, write a new 30-page film treatment, feeling the previous script by Mankiewicz was too campy. The success of The Dark Knight Returns and the graphic novel Batman the Killing Joke rekindled Warner Brothers' interest in a film adaptation. Burton was initially not a comic book fan, but he was impressed by the dark and serious tone found in both The Dark Knight Returns and The Killing Joke. Here's his quote, which I thought was pretty interesting. He said, I was never a giant comic book fan, but I've always loved the image of Batman and the Joker. The reason I've never been a comic book fan, and I think it started when I was a child, is because I could never tell which box I was supposed to read. I don't know if it was dyslexia or whatever, but that's why I love The Killing Joke, because for the first time I could tell which one to read. It's my favorite. It's the first comic I've ever loved. 
and the success of those graphic novels made our ideas more acceptable. But the killing joke would have been after they at least would have written the script because the killing joke was released in 88. Right. And I, I would assume that I think he's talking about more of like just the aesthetic. Also with the killing joke. I mean, you've got already a well-established, um, relationship between Joker and Batman. Right. Um, Well, I wonder too, if they're getting, if it, it was probably released in 88, but if they're working with Bob Kane and some of the uh, the people at DC, they could have gotten early early uh, access to it. Yeah, I I do know that that was the case. That Burton did get kind of uh, he got some advanced copies of like black and white copies of some of the mm-hmm. the drafts of Batman comics. So I I do know that's the case. So. Yeah, could he have gotten the Killing Joke uh, ahead of time while he was writing the script? Possibly. Now, I know, Ron, you're a big fan of the Killing Joke, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't like to say that I'm a big fan of the Killing Joke, as controversial <laughs> as the Killing Joke is. Uh, I do right. own the original uh, Mint Condition comic. I also have the, the graphic novel of the Killing Joke, but I have the, the um, um, original. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, I do appreciate the story, but of course the killing joke is also the classic, um, I mean, the, the controversy for the killing joke for anyone who's listening and doesn't know is it's the classic example of the female character in the storyline only existing to be victimized. Um, and that's, that's basically the only, her only role in the story is to be the victim. Um. So there, it's actually had protests and things that have occurred at different times um, um, against it when they released the uh, the cartoon animated version of oh, it yeah. a, a few years back. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, yeah, let's not classify me as the <laughs> as a big fan as the big fan of 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 the female victimization comic. Um, right, because you're more you're more a fan of the Long Halloween. That's your Long Halloween is yeah, definitely one of my favorites. Oh. Uh, uh, yeah. Halloween's great. Yeah. All right, so Warner Brothers enlisted the aid of Englehart to write a new treatment in March of 1986. Like Mankiewicz's script, it was based on his own strange apparitions and included Silver St. Cloud, Dick Grayson, and the Joker, as well as Rupert Thorne, as well as a cameo appearance by the Penguin. Warner Brothers was impressed, but Englehart felt there were too many characters, which I'm sure he was probably right. He removed the Penguin and Dick Grayson in his second treatment, finishing in May of 1986. So you, Burton Dinner. You know that they there's a whole like storyboard scene with uh mm-hmm. with Robin, with Dick Grayson. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. he was still gonna make a cameo, but they ended up scrapping that. Yeah. But by scrapping it, there's a couple of things in this movie that now are out of place because of scrapping mm-hmm. that. There's a there's a, a throwaway line at the beginning that Alfred says, mm-hmm. uh, and then there's um there's a moment at the end that something Joker says that I think all came from that extended scene, which was just <laughs> way too much. And they were already going mm-hmm. over budget that they, they cut oh, yeah, out yeah. the whole thing with, with Robin. So Burton approached Sam Ham, a true comic book fan to write the screenplay. Ham decided not to use an origin story, feeling that flashbacks would be more suitable 
and that unlocking the mystery would become part of the storyline. Oh, we still we he still re- see the Waynes get shot though. We do. It's in flashback <laughs> though. Yeah. Uh, he reasoned, "You totally destroy your credibility if you show the literal process by which Bruce Wayne becomes Batman." He replaced Silver St. Cloud with Vicky Vale and Rupert Thorne with his own creation, Carl Grissom. He completed a script in October of 86, which demoted Dick Grayson to a cameo rather than a supporting character. Warner Brothers was less willing to move forward on development despite their enthusiasm for Ham's script, which Bob Kane greeted with positive feedback. Ham's script was then bootlegged at various comic book stores in the United States. Batman was finally given the green light to commence pre-production in April of 1988 after the success of Burton's Beetlejuice, which came out the same year. You have Beetlejuice to thank for Batman. Of course. Beetlejuice played Batman. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so of course I'm not did. that big of a Beetlejuice fan. So. Oh, I'm, I am. I'm a big yeah, Beetlejuice I'm with, fan. I'm with Tim on that one. I was never that big of a Beetlejuice. Aren't they redoing it or doing a part two or something I just saw? Yeah, they're, yeah I think there's a sequel... I think Burton's coming back and Keaton's coming back to do a sequel. Keaton's coming one. back to do everybody he played in <laughs> right. the late 80s. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. He's coming back to play Batman again. He's, I think right. he's doing Mr. Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'll be here all week. All right, so uh, anything else you want to add about pre-production? Well, you're talking about some of the comic connections. I do know yeah. that Ham has said in an interview that he was inspired by uh, there's a storyline called the Laughing Fish, um, okay, which kind of tells some of the Joker's origin. You know, it's kind of where he gets mm-hmm. uh, a lot of that. Um, you know the the whole uh, you got the whole Red Hood origin, which they don't really play with here, but they still do the whole he was a a different criminal first. And then, right, right, and then because of this encounter with Batman, um, he becomes uh, the Joker. Although they kind of meld a couple of different stories together. So, in in the origin where he's the Red Hood, he Joker actually, or I say Joker, uh, the Red Hood is the one who actually jumps into the chemicals, like, and he's doing okay. it intentionally. Because it's his way to escape, thinking that the hood that he wears, the red hood, that the material it's made of is protecting him. Although later he finds out that it's turning his skin white, and thus <laughs> we get that. But the idea of him falling into the vat uh, actually comes from a storyline. I'm trying to think of the name of it. It's called something about the chemical syndicate. Um, okay. And it it's the whole Apex Chemical Factory, uh, but it's a completely other thug uh, story. Um, another criminal that ends up falling into the vat of acid, um, gotcha. and that's very early for Batman. I think that was mm-hmm. within the first year that storyline. Okay, um, wow. back in nineteen thirty nine, the Red Hood story didn't come in till the fifties. Um, to give that origin to the Joker, even though Joker, you know, debuted, uh, what was 1940? Yeah. 1940. Cause that was when Batman number one comes out. So that's when, gotcha. the, but the Joker didn't get a, a origin until 11 years later. Uh, mm-hmm. in the, that, that storyline with the red hood. So, but I do know that, that he, 
he has gone on record saying that was an influence to his script. Um, a lot of people thought Batman Year One, but he has said, mm-hmm. you know, that's not at all because again, that was just like with Dark Knight Returns that came out after the fact. Um, mm-hmm. So he had already had his script kind of figured out by that point. So you were eight, so you probably were not as into comics before this came out. So did this spur your love for comics, or was this, were you already, I don't know, were you already into comics at age eight when this came out? I was beginning. Uh, of course, my my connection at this point was things like, you know, the Super Friends. Mm-hmm. Oh, right, right. Uh, you Cartoon. Know, watching, it's like Saturday morning cartoons, you know, the Super Friends and Spider-Man and all those, uh, those Saturday morning cartoons. This... This was right as I was starting to get into comic books. Uh, but crazy enough, as big as a DC guy as I am, my first comic books were all Marvel. <laughs> uh, X-Men and Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daredevil being my first. Oh, gotcha. gotcha. Um, but yeah, and then a bunch of X-Men. So, uh, But this is, right, this is right at that time. So this definitely, I would say, is part of my, uh, my love into superheroes that became lifelong and continues. <laughs> You know, I, I I would wager that that's probably the case for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. That because um, I mean, you have the gap from what uh, that first Superman movie that hits in the nineteen seventies, and I know I'm a little little older than Larry, but that first Superman movie was was such a big deal because, like, I remember a little kid thinking, "Wow, he's flying!" Mm-hmm. Like, and just being mesmerized. You believe a man by can that. fly. Exactly, exactly. The the poster. The um, the tagline the and and I remember HBO doing a thing where they kind of showed how that happened and still being amazed by it, but then there's a gap and you know there's more Superman movies but there's there's really not much else happening in the eighties yeah. um, in that genre and then 1989 this and then of course it's been you know a nonstop <laughs> uh, joyride for us right uh, uh, since then especially of late, um, but I bet that's the case for everyone that this is the one. The 1989 oh, yeah. Tim Burton that kicks it off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Su- you know, Superman coming out uh, at the end of the 70s. You know, it's almost a whole decade later. All four Superman movies had come out by this right. point. Superman four had just come out two years mm-hmm. prior to this, and we know how not great <laughs> of a movie that is. Although I still stand by the fact that Superman four to me is better than three. Um, yeah, but that's but, not saying much. <laughs> yeah, that's that's still not saying much. Two, two yeah. is my favorite of, of that group. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. And Tim and I have talked about two yeah. before on both yeah, of our we podcasts. Did, we did so. the theatrical okay. cut and the Donner cut, so that was that yeah. was fun. But yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, what else have you had? You had Supergirl. Howard the Duck, <laughs> Supergirl. Yeah, you had you had Supergirl. And that's about it. Which again, not great. You had uh, I think the yeah, Punisher I'll say yeah, I would have, remember, I think yeah. the Punisher was that. Was that eighty nine? I think they came. That up, may have been the yeah. same year, and yeah. it might have come out after, not you know, not filmed after, but I think it might have came out later in eighty nine than this one did. But again, you had Howard the Duck. Yeah, let's let's mention that was Marvel's first <laughs> first big movie. <sighs> yeah, major film, Howard the Duck. You know, unfortunately, I, I, let's let's do that. Yeah, episode, eventually Tim. we will. Uh, and I loved that movie as a kid, but I, I can't I can't get through it now. Well, Ron, I asked you that same question. So I know you were already into comics at this point. So, right, I I had stopped collecting. I mean, I collected hard through the early and mid nineteen eighties, but at that point, 
1989, I'm getting ready to be my senior year, so I, I couldn't let anybody know that I was collecting comics as a uh, <laughs> 17-year-old. Uh, guys on the football and basketball team would have beat me senseless. So, um, I mean, now that they all probably collect to some degree or something, right, it's, it's, right. it's, it's accepted. But back then it wasn't. So I had stopped for a couple of years probably by then, probably right around the beginning of the 10th grade. Um, but I did go back and start some more after watching this movie that summer, some Batman mm-hmm. and some X-Men, and, and of course Spider-Man has always been my mainstay. And now these messages. <sighs> what seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues. I don't think I can bear it. Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR. But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. Let's jump right into casting. So uh, I'm not going to deep dive into these as I have in some of the most more recent episodes, uh, but I think these all kind of speak for themselves. So we'll start with the man himself, Batman and Bruce Wayne. So parallel to the Superman casting, a who's who of Hollywood top stars were considered for the role of Batman, including, take a deep breath, Mel Gibson, Kevin Costner, Charlie Sheen, Tom Selleck, Harrison Ford, and Dennis Quaid. If Tom Selleck had been cast in this role in 1989, my mom would have been at this movie on opening night to see <laughs> to see Batman, and it probably would have gone back again on Saturday to see it again. Right. But how do you hide the stash? Oh, you have to take the stash off. That would be. Yeah, maybe that's why he didn't do it. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't see. I don't see a late 80s Tom Selleck shaving no. off a mustache. No. Well, maybe they just digitally remove it, like. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Like Justice League, Superman. Like Justice League. There we go. No. Uh, yeah, that. Let's let's keep like, in mind that yeah. that was only like five <laughs> years ago, and that was a horrible CGI effect. Imagine 1980 version of that. That wasn't even CGI back then. That would they would just kind of like paste it in with makeup or something. So, but yeah, I'm not I'm not too impressed with this list. Uh, I think, Ron and I were talking about it earlier. I think like Kevin Costner, Tom Selleck. Kevin Costner wouldn't have yeah. been horror. Um, and Dennis Quaid have that kind of tall, like in the suit would have been a late, maybe a little bit more brooding, maybe. And they were looking for more of a action star, or the producers were pushing for that pretty hard. So I could see Mel Gibson coming off of Lethal Weapon. Uh, Kevin Costner was moving more into the action movies. Of course, Tom Selleck, Harrison Ford with the Indiana Jones movies. Dennis Quaid, maybe. Uh, he's probably my, you know, he's my least favorite on that list. And Charlie Sheen as well. I don't think, maybe they were thinking with coming off of Platoon, no. but he, I don't see him doing that well at all. Definitely can't see Charlie Sheen. I would not have liked Quaid at all. Harrison Ford, you know, would still have that, you know, some of that athleticism we'd seen in the Indiana Jones movies and that charm as Bruce Wayne would have been, uh, right. would have been interesting to see. 
Uh, another one, Warner Brothers, of course, wanted to cast a real action movie star, and they approached Pierce Brosnan, who, of course, at that point had already turned down Bond uh, because of his ties with Remington Steel. Uh, but he had no interest in playing a comic book character, which I think is hilarious because he's going to be the villain in uh, the Black Adam movie that's coming out. Not the He's not the villain. He's oh, Dr. I'm Fate. Sorry. I got it wrong. Yeah, he's Dr. Fate. He's one of the members of the Justice Society of America. I stand corrected. When I'm doing a podcast with comic book aficionados, it's bound to happen. <laughs> so uh, Burton was originally interested in casting a then relatively unknown actor, Willem Dafoe, who has been reported to be considered for the Joker as well, uh, but they said he was also oh. considered for Batman early in development. Uh, he would have been. He probably could have been a good Joker. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, we see him as as Goblin mm-hmm. now, but it's very similar kind of characteristics there. So. Yeah. Uh, and his facial features. I, I think he definitely. Yeah. Even put him underneath that makeup. Yeah. I don't even think you have to give him the prosthetic that Nicholson. No. No. Had, I think uh, Defoe can get that that big old mm-hmm. grin mm-hmm. just naturally. He's got that weird smile anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of wonder if they were looking at like the young the scene later where you the young Jack Napier, if they were looking for that, he could have been in that that aspect. But because I think he's coming off a of platoon as well, which is a more serious role. But. Uh, but after seeing an early screening of Clean and Sober, John Peters was inspired to cast Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne because of his brooding against type performance. Burton's recent success with Keaton in Beetlejuice made him eager to cast Michael in the role as well, uh, since he could envision Keaton as someone who could dress up like a bat for effect and believed his eyes lent him an intensity that would shine through the Batman cowl. Beetlejuice's box office and critical success and Clean and Sober's good word of mouth made Keaton standing with Warner Brothers a preferred choice for the role. Uh, Michael Uslan had to be convinced by Burton that casting Keaton wasn't going to be a step back towards the camp comedy of Batman 1966, but Burton and Peters won the casting struggle when Keaton was cast in June of 88. So, of course, Keaton's casting caused a controversy among comic book fans with 50,000 protest letters sent to the offices of Warner Brothers. Kane, Ham, and Uslan also heavily questioned the casting. Uh, someone said, obviously there was a negative response from the comic book people. I think they thought they were going to make it like the 60s TV series and make it campy because they thought of Michael Keaton from Mr. Mom and Night Shift and stuff like that. But Keaton studied The Dark Knight Returns for inspiration. Michael Keaton, who calls himself a logic freak, was concerned that Batman's secret identity would in reality be fairly easy to uncover and discussed ideas with Burton to better disguise the character, including the use of contact lenses. Ultimately, Keaton decided to perform Batman's voice at a lower register than when he was portraying Bruce Wayne. This technique became a staple of future portrayals of Batman in film, television, and video games, especially those of Kevin Conroy and Christian Bale. Christian Bale did too much, though. Yeah, <laughs> which, if you want to hear us talk about those uh, more recent Batman movies, of course, we just did a, the three of us were on an episode of Moving Panels just a few weeks ago to talk about The Batman, the newest Batman incarnation. So definitely go check that out as we'll, we discuss that a little bit more in depth. But we've all said it. We'll say it again. Michael Keaton is our Batman. We don't see anybody else in this role. Well, you left out somebody that... Uh, that- I don't know if they were after him, but wanted this role. Who's that? Adam West. 
Oh yeah, that's right. I didn't I didn't dig into the Adam West part. I mean, I yeah. saw it there, but I was like, eh. Yeah. Yeah, he he wanted to come back. They they you know, there was rumors that they wanted him to come back and do a cameo, which he's he said later that they never contacted him for that, but there were some that's there were some reports that there were talks to have him and uh Julie Newmar to play Bruce Wayne's parent. I mean, yeah, Bruce Wayne's parents yeah. in the flashback scene, but was not yeah. to be. He was sixty one. Yeah. When this yeah. yeah. Adam West was in was sixty. <laughs> that but was gonna be a different take of the Batman if he was cast. Definitely would. I, I wouldn't have minded him being Thomas Wayne though. I mean he he did later voice Thomas Wayne. Right, right. Uh in the animated in some of the animated stuff. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I, th- I definitely think that would be the more natural way to go for that. There's there's no way Burton would would, would have had him as a Batman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would have been cool with a cameo, but yeah, not not the lead role, not not at all. All right, moving right along to the Joker. So uh, Tim Curry, David Bowie, John Lithgow, Ray Liotta, and James Woods were all considered for the Joker. Lithgow, during his audition, attempted to talk Burton out of casting him, a decision he would <laughs> later publicly regret, saying, "I didn't realize it was such a big deal." Unquote. Burden also wanted to cast John Glover, but the studio insisted on using a movie star. Of course, the big story was Robin Williams lobbied hard and was actually offered the role of Joker when Jack Nicholson hesitated. Nicholson had been the studio's top choice since 1980, and Peters had actually approached him as far back as 86 during the filming of The Witches of Eastwick. When producers approached Nicholson again and told him Robin Williams would take the part if he didn't, Nicholson took the role, and Williams was released. Robin Williams resented being used as bait and not only refused to play the Riddler in Batman Forever in 95, but also refused to be involved in any Warner Brothers productions until the studio apologized, which I don't think they ever did. Yeah, and that was cold, because I I read a lot of that. It's like they just used Robin Williams Mm -hmm. to get Jack Nicholson. Right, right. And uh, talent of Robin Williams, and I would have... I mean, okay, it, not playing the Joker, fine. I would have loved to have seen Robin Williams as the Oh, Riddler. absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That would have been great. Mm-hmm. And I uh, hate that they shot themselves in the foot for that. <laughs> yep. Yep. So Nicholson was also known as having an off-the-clock, quote-unquote, agreement. His contract specified the number of hours he was entitled to have off each day from the time he left the set to the time he reported back for filming as well as being off for all Lakers home games. <laughs> Nicholson demanded that all of his scenes be shot in a three-week block, but the schedule lapsed into 106 days. He reduced his standard $10 million fee to $6 million in exchange for a cut of the film's earning, including associated merchandise, which led to an excess of $50 million when all was said yep, and done. That's the way to go. Yep. And one biographer said that he believes he received as much as $90 million. Wow. It's crazy. Uh, But Nicholson has said that what made the Joker one of his favorite roles was that it allowed him so much creative freedom. In Nicholson's view, while most character roles have specific traits to which an actor has to stay true, the Joker's specific trait is that he's unpredictable, meaning that he was able to do whatever he wanted and still stay true to the character, which is very evident in his portrayal of the Joker, I would think. And, you know, going back to what Laramie said a few few moments ago, that just... Thinking about how much him saying how much freedom he had to play that role, 
imagining how mm-hmm. what Robin Williams would have done with Freedom <laughs> as the Riddler. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> to me, it it felt like Nicholson got to go back to something he hadn't done, at least in my opinion, in a while. You know, going back to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's right, Nest. Right. Right. You know, it right. really felt like he went back to that character uh, mm-hmm. for a lot of this. You know, not that he didn't separate and, and become too much too serious because you're talking, you know, Witches of Eastwick. You know, he was a little zany and <laughs> off the wall yeah. for that as well. But, but I really, when when I watch his performance as the Joker, it does remind me a lot of his character from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Moving right along to uh, Vicky Vale. Kim Basinger was not the first choice for Vicky Vale. Sean Young was originally cast as Vicky Vale, but was injured in a horse riding accident prior to commencement of filming. Her departure necessitated an urgent search for an actress who, besides being right for the part, would commit to the film at very short notice. Peter suggested Basinger. She was able to join the production immediately and was cast. So can we talk about why Sean Young was injured? Sure, go for it. So you said horse riding, mm-hmm. but do you know it was because she was rehearsing mm-hmm. riding a horse for a scene in Batman that you're going, but there is no horse riding scene. Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> the scene was cut altogether. Yeah. So Sean Young just got screwed over Yeah. completely. Because um, that was actually, that was the Robin scene. That was the Dick Grayson scene. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. And yeah, you're supposed to have, you were supposed to have uh, Batman, well, I say Batman, Bruce Wayne, who would have just been wearing a ski mask, uh, Bruce Wayne on a horse with Vicky Vale, um, and yeah, and so that's what Sean Young was uh, working on, was her horse riding skills when she <laughs> fell and broke her arm. That's crazy. <clears throat> that is so cold. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, any Basinger fans here? Because I'm no, not. No, this is she is terrible. She's terrible in everything. But this is this is <laughs> the entire time I watched her. This movie, I was like, this is just. I mean, what is your problem with Cool World? <laughs> <laughs> Don't even get me started. My, my problem with you, if you like Cool World, the <laughs> I mean, Kim basically is a beautiful woman, and 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 right. you know looks the part of uh, I guess Bachelor Playboy Bruce Wayne's love interest, but she, mm-hmm. she's just terrible. I mean, the performance is just flat. There's and really everything that I've ever seen her in, um, I'm not sure who. I mean, other than who you just mentioned, um, who else they could have cast at that time? I really haven't dug into that. The deep, there had to be someone that would give Michael Keaton more to to do. And I bet you, if you asked him off camera and he was honest, he would talk about how difficult some of those scenes with her was. Well, another fun fact: uh, someone who wanted the role but didn't get it was Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh. But she was actually <laughs> dating Keaton at the time, and he said. He he actually talked her out of it, but of course she returned as Catwoman in Batman Returns when they were not dating. So that made for fun times on filming, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Because Keaton ended up dating Basinger when this ended, and broke up her marriage. But that's a whole other story. You know, I wonder. Talk going back to the Beetlejuice connection. What 
I wonder about Gina Davis. If Gina Davis could have played Vicky Vale. Uh, she would have been well. Is she would have been too tall, probably? They were, or they would have. Oh, that's true. They would have had to make some adjustments because Keaton is not that tall. Also, it's crazy. Kim Basinger is not that tall either. Mm-hmm. But do you notice how many times they have to find a way for her to lose her shoes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the movie, I didn't notice that until you just pointed it out. But you're right. She's constantly getting rid of the shoes. Yeah. There's like there's three different times yeah. that she has to lose her shoes. There was one thing I read that they, she takes her shoes off every time she's getting in and out of the Batmobile. Yes. Because her heels would scratch the paint that they use, and it was very specific paint that they got from Japan. So they told her, you, can, you cannot scratch up this car anymore, so she had to take her shoes off to get in and out of the car. I'm sure with her heels, she would have been uh, taller than Michael Keaton. And Michael Keaton's 5'10", maybe? That's a, a giant by Hollywood standards. Yeah, and then... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Uh, it's a giant by Tom Cruise standards. Um, uh, yeah, that's I was going there. <laughs> and then, and well, and you know, Batman's. I think it's stated in the comics. You know, Bruce Wayne is six foot two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, big deal that he's five ten, five nine, whatever Michael Keaton was. And I think Kim Basinger's like five seven. Okay, so she's right there at the same height. So definitely, if she's got some heels on. You know, she's she's going to have a few inches on uh, Michael Keaton. And you can't have that. You can't have your leading lady being taller than your Wasn't superhero. If, if, and I yep. haven't researched this, but memory wants to tell me that Kim Basinger was dating Prince at this time. And I wonder if there's some connection there as so he huh. was doing the soundtrack and her getting the part. Because them getting him to... Uh, well, he was... Yeah, he was brought on later for the to take on the soundtrack. I wonder if she convinced him to do it then. Um, I think we'll talk about it later, but actually the original idea was they wanted Prince, Michael Jackson, and George Michael to actually do the songs. So Prince was only going to do the songs for the Joker. Michael Jackson was going to do the love songs, I think. And then I can't remember what George Michael's part was, but yeah, it was supposed to be split between the three of them, but Michael Jackson backed out because of his touring commitments and George Michael just didn't want to do it. But I don't think he's as much of a songwriter as the other two of them were. So that definitely would have been, especially in the, in the late eighties, a Michael Jackson Prince collaboration would have sold probably twice as many as the Batman soundtrack sold. And it sold a lot. So, continue with the cast. We'll hit a few more people here. Uh, as a fan of Michael Goff's work in various classic horror films, Burton cast him as Bruce Wayne's mysterious butler, Alfred. Did I say his last name right? Does anybody know? Yeah, you're good. Goff. <laughs> Goff, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So, I, I'm not familiar with this classic horror films. Any, I know Laramie's more the horror guy, or Ron, too. I'm sure he wasn't in too many 80s horror movies. He's probably thinking more like the, what, 50s and 60s, probably? Probably. Yeah. Right Right now, you know, my brain's not on that mode to think of what it could be. Because, <laughs> right. um, you know, I'm, I'm in 80s mode. Like, I'm just thinking, okay, he's in, well, he's in all four of the Batman movies. Um, right. And then he was in, he was in Top Secret, wasn't he? With Val Kimmler? It's possible. I don't remember that movie at all. I don't either. I think he was in The Serpent and the Rainbow. Uh, okay. Which would have been horror. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can't think of anything else off the top of my head right now. So then we had Robert Wool was cast as reporter Alexander Knox. His character was originally supposed to die by the Joker's poison gas in the climax, but the filmmakers liked his character so much they decided to let him live. At least that's what Robert Wool said. His death was supposed to be what creates the bat signal. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So from from what I know is that his death, he was to then fall back onto the spotlight. And the way his, you know how he's always wearing a trench coat. The trench coat, The way his right. trench coat would flare out is what would make the original bat symbol. Gotcha. I kind of remember something about that now. What's interesting, too, is is his character in the comic book adaptation, which I was reading the comic. We talked about this on the uh, Laramie's podcast about the Batman. I mentioned that I have the movie adaptation of the comic. In the comic, he lives because there's some there's a few scenes that are in the comic that aren't in the movie or like alternate versions. But in the comic book adaptation, they show that Batman, they think Batman falls to his death just like the Joker does. And so they find the bat suit, but when they turn the bat suit over, it's Knox. And so it causes this this uh, rumor that Knox is the Batman. When the mayor's making the speech at the end, he's like, we're going to put rid of these rumors that Knox is not the Batman. So uh, I thought that was interesting. But but Alexander Knox is not a character from the comics as well, right? That was I think that was completely made up for the movie. Yeah, he is not. Don Johnson... Crockett himself, and uh, who would later become Mr. CSI William Peterson, were considered for the role of Harvey Dent. <laughs> Burton chose Billy D. Williams, who took the role with the expectation that he would be brought back to play Two-Face, and reportedly had a contract clause added reserving the role for him in the sequels. But during the casting for Batman Forever in 95, Warner Brothers decided they wanted Tommy Lee Jones instead, and they bought out Williams' contract. Williams was, of course, disappointed, but got his chance to reprise his role when he voiced the character in the Lego Batman movie. <laughs> Lego Batman. And and I I loved Billy Dee Williams mm-hmm. in this role and was so looking forward to him taking on that, that further. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like Tommy Lee Jones as well, but I really would have liked to, to see Billy Dee Williams you know, get to carry on that, that character. I, I think he could have had a lot of fun yeah. uh, doing that. Yeah. I remember, like, once again, as a kid, I remember seeing Billy Dee Williams in that scene. It was like, it's Lando Calrissian. Like, that's the only other thing I really knew him from besides the yeah. Colt 45 commercials you'd catch on Saturday morning uh, or Saturday afternoon after the cartoons went off. But, um, but yeah, but I was, I, I wouldn't, and, of course, at that point, I didn't know who Harvey Dent was. I didn't know his, what he would become, you know, Two-Face, I didn't have that comic background, but uh, I would have liked to have seen more of him in the movies as well. Uh, so the Joker's henchman, Bob, <laughs> is actually one of Nicholson's close friends that he convinced the filmmakers to cast, and his name is Tracy Walter. And uh, one of my favorite scenes is, which we haven't got there yet, but I'm going to do it now anyway. One of my favorite scenes is when the Joker is imitating... Grissom with his Bob, you're my number one guy, yeah. and I. So I just that all, that scene always makes me laugh. But but then poor Bob gets shot by the Joker at the end, which was kind of sad. 
Um, it's funny because I have that scene written down as one of my favorite scenes in the movie. <laughs> my number one guy. Um, you just you have to love Palance. I mean, Palance just chewing oh, yeah, scenery yeah. Uh, uh, in this movie, and and I just uh, just I, I thought they got rid of that character a little a little too soon, just because he was he was having yeah. so much <laughs> fun. Uh, him and Jack together yeah, were just yeah. like 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 if if you want to spin off a Joker movie, that's the movie I want to see. I want to see Jack Palance and and, and Jack Nicholson. You know, together just for like two hours doing gangster right, stuff. Right. Like that's that's the fun movie I would have wanted. Yeah, Burton said he was so intimidated by having Nicholson and Palance on the set together, like he was. And that was on some of the first scenes they shot, and he was so nervous around Jack Palance because he was such a big fan of his. But then he realized he would yell action, and Palance wouldn't move, and he realized that Jack Palance was losing his hearing. But he didn't want to embarrass him, so they had to, he had to come up with a way to let him know to start the scene without the rest of the cast realizing what was going on. So, very interesting. All right, well, that pretty much rounds out the cast, at least those that I'm going to talk about, because I was going to talk about Jack Palance, but of course, Ron brought him up already. So, that's where we are. Anybody else you guys want to talk about from the cast that stands out? I think we kind of hit the, the main ones. Yeah, we definitely hit the main ones. That's what, yeah. that's what I had written down. Yeah, I, th- I think the only one to maybe just have anything to say about would be uh, Pat Hinkle right. as Gordon. Um, but that's, I, I would, you know, only mention him just because of how, uh, you know, legendary of an actor he is. As well as the fact that, like Alfred, he would be one of the only uh, actors to return for mm-hmm. all the other sequels. Right, right. Because so, he would play Gordon for all four movies. Not that their roles got any bigger, they were just they were just still in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And now these messages. What's up dudes? I'm Jerry D of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the eighties. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the eighties, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the eighties and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooged, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas Special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever, like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagging with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle, and Chant with the Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes! Alright, we kind of talked about it, so let's talk about iconic and favorite scenes. So, iconic scene, I'm, I'm curious to see if we all have the same ones. So, uh, Laramie, I'll let you go first on this one. Iconic scene. I, I can't, I can't not say it's the opening with him hanging the guy off. Oh yeah, the I am Batman. Right. You know, because uh, that pretty much just solidified that moment mm-hmm. for every other Batman that would come after. Oh, which yeah. was not the originally written line. Yep. The which you know you talked about you have the the comic book adaptation. Mm-hmm. You know, the comic book adaptation was written based off of the original script. Yep. Not the movie. Yep. 
And so it was Michael Keaton that while they filmed, he came up with the I'm Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the original line was I am the knight. Yep. Which is in the comic. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then of course, you know, uh, the great uh, voice actor that is Kevin Conroy would do the whole, you know, I am the knight. I am vengeance. I am Batman. You know, he would put it all together. Uh, but, I, you know, if I'm just going to give one right now, I can't not say it's the the I'm Batman. Yeah, that's a good one. All right, Ron, what you got? Well, I, again, we stole the thunder a little bit earlier with um, <laughs> uh, you're my number one guy. Um, I, I love that scene. The scene that made, made me laugh, and I had forgotten about the scene and then it, it it made me laugh out loud this time, and it, and it has for a while has made me laugh out loud. Not in 1989, but the state of the art VCR surveillance system, <laughs> where he's <laughs> he's rewinding all the different scenes, uh, mm-hmm. different things just make just makes you chuckle, just because it's such a outdated uh, you know surveillance camera kind of kind of thing. Right. Um, right. But the, 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 the scene that in this movie that excited me the most in 1989, when this movie happened, mm-hmm. was the first time the Batmobile makes that appearance on the screen. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. The, the greatest cars that we'd seen since the DeLorean, probably mm-hmm. as far as iconic. But when that, like, I remember my buddy Jeff, like, reaching over and grabbing me and going, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> like just loved that. Yep. That was the that really cool Batmobile and, and watching it this time, I, mm-hmm. I got a little bit of that again, a uh, little bit of the heart increase, just like, even though I've been to Disney world a hundred times, every time I'm starting ready to go in, the heartbeat goes up just a little bit as you're starting to go into the magic kingdom. <laughs> right. Yeah. I hate though, that it's just sitting there when we first see it though. True. True. I think that's the one thing I don't like is yeah. that it's just about getting the car. What car? And I'm like, are you blind, <laughs> Vicky? Because you're clearly just ten feet from it, and right. I'm pretty sure you noticed this car, which it looks like no other car right. you've ever right. seen before. Um, no, yeah, great Batmobile. Um, but uh, and I'm, I'm I might step on your toes here, Tim. But I got to go back uh, and give another iconic the uh, the Batwing when. Yeah, uh, no, I you see. I did it. I you did it. Mine. Yeah. <laughs> well, go ahead. Bat, Batwing against the full moon. Yeah. The, yeah. I mean, yeah. That was that was the scene that the, the theater erupted when that happened. Like that's one of those moments that I remember being in the theater and hearing like the whole and it was a packed theater like everybody just kind of losing their minds like, "Oh my gosh, they're going to show this," you know. It was like that was like the coolest <laughs> thing we could think to see. Uh so yeah, so yeah, the the bat wing over the moon was is that's my iconic scene. But the the bat the revealing of the Batmobile is probably a close second. I was telling Ron a couple of weeks ago, I at that around that time I was kind of getting into modeling like the little model cars and airplanes yeah. and stuff. And I had I'd bought the model of the Batmobile and put it together. And I I had it for I kept that on in my room for a long time before all the pieces the glue started to get too old, all the pieces started to fall off. But uh, but yeah, that was that is definitely one of the most iconic vehicles in movie history for sure. So, all right. So, what about favorite scenes? I know we've probably got plenty of them. So, uh, Ron, favorite scenes besides you're my number one guy. Um, and, and again, just the car showing up for the first time and and the VCR scene. Um, 
Those are all, all my favorite. You know, again, in this movie, and again, we expect it in a Batman movie, but, you know, the first, you know, what the, the DC movie, end of the movie, dark, nighttime, hard to see, you know, <laughs> we know that that's always going to be the case. We expect it in a Batman movie. And that's one of the things, having not seen this movie for a long time, when I got, like, the first half of this movie, I really, really enjoyed watching it this time. And the second half, not not quite as much. It wasn't bad, but just just just... Uh, mm-hmm. just not quite as much um, obviously still love the movie but um, the Palance and, and Jack together early in the movie are just good I, I've, maybe I've just always loved Jack Palance I mean I love City Slickers as, as well uh, so um, <laughs> yeah. when you think oh, of yeah. this movie Jack Palance is not someone that comes to mind but literally when he popped on the screen I was like oh yeah Jack Palance um, <laughs> so any of the scenes that he was in in the beginning for me alright what about you Laramie any other favorite scenes? Yeah. I'm sure you've got plenty. Yeah, I've got a few. Um, so I I like the going back to the Batwing, which is where I was going to bring this up again. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, when he's shooting, which, which again, we go into the Batman doesn't kill, but he's got these <laughs> mounted machine guns on his Batwing. And, and rockets. Yeah. Right. He did blow up the whole Axis chemical factory, right? Yeah. With all yes. the henchmen, so... But he's, you know, shooting at the Joker, and Joker's mm-hmm. just standing there. Right, like, right. Yeah, that's iconic, yeah. for sure. Uh, big and he fan. can't hit him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then and then the Joker pulls out his five-foot-long long gun. Pistol, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I also love the, um, the moment at the end when Joker is dancing with Vicky Vale. Mm-hmm. And because it's just... It's a creepy moment, which <laughs> real creepy, yeah, yeah, which works so well uh, for the mm-hmm. Joker. Um, so yeah, I, I'll, I'll leave it at those two. But I, I've got others. <laughs> <laughs> Probably my my second iconic scene, the opening of the movie. I remember the, the once again going back to the first time, the camera going through the pieces of the logo. Which first time seeing you, you don't know what that is. You're like. You know, I remember just thinking, where is this going? Like, what is this maze that we're going through? And then as it backed out and was revealed that we were, you know, kind of going through the 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 edges or the design of the the bat signal or the logo, that was like, that was super cool. Like, I, that was one of those things, like, n- no one had ever done that before, like, or at least that I had seen uh, in my short life at that point. But to me, that was a pretty groundbreaking scene. And even Burton talked about the opening of the uh, Warner Brothers logo not being their traditional bright logo. He said he got a lot of flack for that. Like, they fought him hard about not altering that. And he's like, now everybody does it. They do it, you know, more often now. But he kind of, he kind of, you know, set that trend. But, yeah, I mean, there's there's tons of great scenes. They're great yeah. lines. And, of course, oh, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of the lines are ingrained in my memory just from the Bat Dance song from Prince. Because he used so many lines from the movie, so you have a dance uh, with the devil in the pale moonlight. Pale moonlight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you want to get nuts? Come on, let's, let's get nuts. Let's get nuts. <laughs> Which I always thought, like I couldn't find anywhere. Like I felt like that had to have been improvised by Keaton, but I didn't see anything about that being an improvised line. It's in the comic. it's in the comic. Which again, that was yeah. that was based off of the script. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's very few. I mean, there's there's a few. They, of course, they have to paraphrase. They they kind of mush some scenes together. But a lot of the dialogue is pretty much straight from the movie. Yep. 
so it doesn't deviate too too much. So no great lines, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, when Jack, uh, Jack's dead. Uh, mm-hmm. You can call me Joker, and as you can see, I'm a lot happier. <laughs> right. Great right. line. Stop the press. Who is that? Vicky Vale. Which in the comic he sees her on TV. She's being interviewed. It's not looking at the the pictures, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. So. <laughs> Going back to that final, you wouldn't hit a glass with glasses, would you? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Just well, let's talk. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about you know we talk about everybody talks about oh the eighty nine Batman was so dark it got away from the campy. This movie gets very campy, especially oh, yeah. at the end. Oh yeah, yeah. Spitting out his little chattering teeth and uh, let me. Let me give you guys a hand. It's like he just completely hams it up at the end, but it becomes super campy to me in the third well, act. Well, not just at the end, you know, at yeah. the beginning when he's meeting with all of the other crime Oh, yeah, lords, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he electrocutes the guy mm-hmm. to the point where he's completely fried, charred remains uh, by the end of it. It's getting a little hot under uh, the collar. Yeah. <laughs> and then proceeds to, to have a conversation with the corpse. Yeah. That's why I'm glad you're dead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, another one of my scenes, which I always thought about this when watching it, is is it after that? There's a scene like short. No, I think it's after he kills Grissom and the Joker is sitting at the desk, and he starts like going ooh ooh in the makeup, and I was like, I wonder if that was the first scene he did with the makeup, and he was just, you know, trying yeah. to see what his mouth could do with that makeup in it. That scene always feels. It's always kind of weird, like. You think they would have cut that part out, but it's still there, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, and then the whole parade. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just that's yeah, that's very comic bookish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he stole my balloons. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Why didn't you tell me you had one of those things? <laughs> All of those are great lines. There's there's just so many in in yeah. this movie. Um, <laughs> it's amazing because every single one of those has made me yeah. has made me laugh laugh out loud Nicholson definitely got the best lines my, one of my favorite yeah. this town needs an enema that's still one of my favorite favorite lines <laughs> well I, I even it's Michael Keaton with some of his delivery mm-hmm. on some of his I mean just just him him standing there as Knox and Vale are <laughs> going through that room right. with all the statues in it and he was like, uh, no, he's Japanese. How do you know? How do you know? Because uh, I bought him in Japan. Right, right. Oh, I'm Bruce Wayne, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> oh, and I, my, yeah. one of my, I love it when he leaves. He goes, uh, and Alfred, get Knox a grant. And Knox's yeah. face is just like, uh, okay. Because he was, yeah. it was like a throwaway. But that just, you know, as much as we talked about, and we're kind of jumping to a different podcast, but we talked a lot about in Laramie's podcast about the Batman about, Robert Pattinson's version of Bruce Wayne hasn't developed into that, you know, playboy kind of persona. And I would say even in this one, he hasn't because of Vicky Vale is like, you know, he makes some comments about, you know, doesn't have somebody to have breakfast with and doesn't have company in parts of the house. So he's obviously not like quite the playboy yet, but he definitely has. But he's got that sitting on completely ends of an extremely long table. Yeah. Yeah. That's another great... Which was Keaton's yeah. idea. He said that was... Coming oh. from comedy, he said it helped him to look at things a little differently. So he suggested the long table to kind of give that that uh, yeah. that idea, which I thought was... Do you yeah. like to eat in here? Yeah. And then he looks around. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever actually been in this room. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. 
Which is what, I mean, once again, which is why I think he's probably my favorite Bruce Wayne because he he can be funny. Like, he's not so yeah. smooth and so suave that he's not just, just a funny guy, guy with a great sense of humor. So it does it well. All right, well, let's jump into a little bit of trivia before we start wrapping things up. Uh, so this is some, some behind-the-scenes stuff before we get into some of the scenes, but uh, I thought these were great stories. So Michael Keaton stated that the crew would take basketball games for Nicholson as he would come in and watch them the next day while his makeup was being added. One day, when by his own admission, Jack was so frustrated that no game was on, he turned on the only sport available on the four TV channels in the UK at the time, which was the 1989 BDO World Darts Championship. The next day he passed Michael on the set, he looked at him and said, how about that dart game? And they both just burst out laughing. So, thought that was pretty funny. Uh, and then uh, Nicholson got into the habit of signing his Joker gloves and giving them away as gifts to visitors on the set, much to the chagrin of costume designer Bob Ringwood. <laughs> Ringwin asked Nicholson to cease giving out the gloves, and although he promised he would, he kept doing it anyway. New gloves were constantly being made throughout filming. Ringwood estimated there must have been hundreds of signed Nicholson Joker gloves, which makes me want to know where where are those gloves now? Like, I would love to know where one of those are. Uh, yeah, I'm sure those are those are in private collections. Yeah. I'm sure. All right, so here's one for you, Larry. I don't know if you caught if you knew much about this one. So the film establishes that Vicki Vale has worked as a photojournalist and war correspondent, having covered the Corto Maltese revolution. Corto Maltese is the setting of a fictional revolution in the comic book miniseries, Batman, the dark Knight returns in 86 by Frank Miller in the series. Superman's attempts to subdue the rebels on behalf of the U S government instead caused the Soviet union to directly attack the United States. The name of the location is a reference to the Italian comic book character Corto Maltese, who starred in his own series of graphic novels from 1967 to 1989. The character is a globetrotter from Malta who gets involved in multiple wars and revolutions during the first three decades of the 20th century. Yep. <laughs> I was like, I guess I covered it too well. <laughs> but yeah, I, I never... I mean, there's no, there's no, no more. You told okay, the story. Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. I try to be thorough. Um but yeah, like I never thought when I would, you know, watch the movie many times with the Corto Maltese, I had no idea what that was referencing to. So I thought that was that was pretty interesting. But like you talked about with the whole Harvey Dent and Two Face, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, definitely wouldn't have known that, you know, in nineteen eighty nine, mm-hmm. watching it. But but yeah, no, you do you you become a bigger comic book fan, especially Superman and all. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. No, I, 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 yeah, wouldn't have known it right off the bat, but definitely knew it later down the road. Yeah. I did like that the news channel is called Action News and bears a similar logo to Action Comics. Action Comics. So, which was the, uh, the company before it changed its name to DC Comics. So, nice little, did some good Easter eggs, uh, for the comic book lovers for sure, even though Burton wasn't, uh, much of a comic fan. Well, no, Action Comics wasn't the original before. Action, Action Comics still okay. exists. Action Comics is the name of pretty much Superman's comic book. Uh, DC Comics actually more came from the Detective Comics. Oh, right, right, right. What Batman, Batman came from. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, I'm being stool. I'm being schooled still today. So that's why. <laughs> that's why I like having him on the podcast. I learned something. So, so some deleted, unfinished scenes. 
In Ham's original script, the effect of Smilex, which was called Smilinol in the script, is first seen on the two female models who are only represented in the film as cardboard cutouts in the Joker's commercial. The original scene had them in a bikini photo session with a photographer who's urging them to smile more as he snaps away. The girls begin to giggle, which at first pleases the photographer, then their giggles become laughter, then uncontrollable helpless hysterics, which has the photographer going from mild annoyance to complete horror as the exhausted girls die from forced hilarity with the ghastly Joker-like grins frozen on their faces. As it was originally intended, the death scene is much more protracted than the one that remains in the film with Becky, the newscaster, depicting death by Smilex as a particularly agonizing, if mirthful, way to go. This kind of death scene was a running gimmick from the Joker's original story in 1940 and was revived in comic books from the 1973 onward. Interesting. I thought that was cool. Yeah, that comes from that, uh, the laughing fish story. Oh, okay. Um, the, the whole yeah, death by death by laughter. Um, I, I do love that they, the, the, the whole, they didn't know what, where the chemical was. And mm-hmm. so you all of a sudden have the news reporters <laughs> that, uh, which obviously they put makeup on them to make it look like they no, weren't making, exactly, wearing makeup. Exactly. I love how the male, uh, male news reporter looks like he has acne. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, so. so another scene was written, but never filmed, in which the Joker took over a public ceremony and held mayor Borg hostage unveiling a statue of himself and laced the Gotham City Police Department's coffee with a non-lethal poison, which would have explained why there are no police in the parade scene, which I never really thought about until I read that, that there are no police in that scene. I I never noticed it either until you just said that. And then another scene that was cut from the parade sequence, but it's actually in the comic book version, the crowd discovered that all the money the Joker was handing out was counterfeit, it was uh, in a follow-up to the Joker's early line that he wanted his face on the $1 bill. All the dollar bills that were thrown through the crowd have the Joker's picture instead of George Washington's. I have a problem with that because then that makes it feel like the Joker is doing a good thing. Right. When you take that scene out. Yeah, yeah. Because he's, he, if with taking that scene out, as far as we know, watching that movie, mm-hmm. he just gave up, gave a whole bunch of money to the people of Gotham. Right. And so why would the people of Gotham look at him as this horrible villain now? Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll kind of wrap things up with Burton's thoughts on the movie, which I thought was interesting. Shortly after completing the film, Tim Burton said, quote, I like parts of it, but the whole movie is mainly boring to me. It's okay, but it was more of a cultural phenomenon than a great movie, unquote. He also wasn't enthusiastic about how Prince's songs were used in the film, as time has distanced him from the stressful production of the film, he has become more favorable of it. So, it's still a great movie. I mean, it's still iconic. But I remember, after seeing it in the theater and then buying the video, I don't think I, I watched it, but I don't think I ever watched it all the way through as much as I got older. Like, there are parts of it I like, but at some point I got bored, like, in the before the third act. So it does kind of drag some in that yeah, middle that middle section, middle. Um, but it's still fun. I mean, I'm I'm not taking, but it's interesting to know that that Burton looked at it and said, "Yeah, it's kind of boring in some spots. It could have been tightened up." But I'm sure he was, which we didn't talk about. He was faced with a huge, you know, deadline to get it done. They went over budget. They went longer on the on the filming, 
And we can talk a little bit about the special effects. There's a lot of cartoon, cartoonish effects in the movie that didn't translate as well. And there was some research input in here that there were some final, final effects that they were not happy with at all, but he had to leave in because of the time. I, I will say as much as I like the Batmobile, I've always hated when the shield yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a pretty it's cheesy. It's such a weird graphic. It all, I, I didn't understand it. I remember watching it in the movies. I didn't understand what was happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then the beginning, the little cartoon silhouette before we see uh, Batman with the, uh, the robbers at the beginning. It's very cartooned. Yeah. Uh, cartoonish, and then of course the models when uh, Batman and Vicky Vale are hanging at the end and they're swinging, it's very evident that it's a model and it's like just two little figurines on a string. Uh, but we're nitpicking at this point. But <laughs> we are. <laughs> but we've, we've uh, special effects have come a long way since then. Well, and I, I loved some of the the applications of just basic, you know theater tricks mm-hmm. really because with Jack Nicholson there's there's two that I, I love every time I see mm-hmm. him and the first is when he's um, when he's put on all the flesh tone makeup right right and then he pulls his handkerchief out and he wipes his forehead and it's supposed to look like he's wiping off the flesh tone but what he's really doing is he's applying the mm-hmm. white makeup mm-hmm. and then they flip that later when they show him getting ready and he's putting on the the flesh tone the flesh right. tone he's actually wiping off <laughs> the white makeup <laughs> and it's just a great visual mm-hmm. that you know comes across the way it's supposed to yeah. but to realize he's actually doing the opposite of what it's uh, coming across as I, I love that I will say the one time I do not like his prosthetics is actually that first time uh, when he's Sitting with the the crime lords, mm-hmm. and you know the one says, you know, what's with the grin? It it looks like there's something. It's like the coloring of the makeup didn't quite work, mm-hmm. and so it always looks to me like right around his mouth, you can tell there's something there. Um, it's kind of hard to describe, yeah, but it was probably yeah. There's yeah. something just a little off with the makeup and prosthetics for that one scene. Yeah. yeah. Other than that, it looks fine. It looks great. I'm sure they had different, different versions that they had to use, but too with, with the white makeup, probably defines stuff a lot easier than when he's in the flesh tone. You can't see the definition as well, so it probably looks weird. But yeah. All right. So Batman grossed 2.2 million dollars in late night previews on June 22nd, 1989, on 1,215 screens and grossed $40 million in 2,000 theaters during its opening weekend. This broke the opening weekend records held by Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, which had a four-day Memorial Day weekend gross of $37 million the previous month. It also beat out Ghostbusters 2, which had a $29 million three-day opening weekend the previous weekend. The film also set a record for a second weekend gross of $30 million, also the second biggest three-day weekend of all time, and became the fastest film to earn a hundred million dollars reaching it in 11 days which is 10 days plus the late night previews yeah it made a lot of money which we all knew that but i think it's interesting that ghostbusters 2 came out the week before batman andy nan jones and the last crusade so this was a 
new movie battling sequels at that Dang. point and and beat both of them. Even though I think uh, Last Crusade made more made more money worldwide, but Batman reigned in the North American theaters. Can we just acknowledge the fact the 80s were awesome? Yeah. <laughs> Batman, Ghostbusters 2, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Mm-hmm. To go and be able to see those three movies at the movie theater at the same time, man. That sounds like a sad. That, that's a Saturday I want to have back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for... the question is which one? All right, here we go. Which one do you see? Which the order you watch them in? You got a Saturday. You can see all three. Am I me me now? Yeah, let's, or am I me then? We'll do both. What would you do if you were then and what you are now? You can go first, Laramie. Because then, to be honest, then it would have been Ghostbusters two first, right? Uh. Now it would have been Batman first, um, and then I think uh, I think it's kind of a, a toss up between the other two because uh, I do love Last Crusade. Yeah, yeah. I, Last Crusade I, is honestly my favorite Indiana Jones movie. I agree. We had that discussion before. Um, yeah. So, um, but oh yeah. Of course, as much as people dislike Ghostbusters too, it's not that bad. Yeah, I'm a fan. Yeah. All right. What about you, Ron? What's your clo- what's your starter? What's your closer? I'm I'm starting Batman, um, Indiana Jones, and then and then Ghostbusters. Well, you're closing out with Ghostbusters too. Yeah, I, just because I'm gonna get tired. <laughs> <laughs> so, you're gonna nap during Ghostbusters too. <laughs> yeah, I, well, yeah, because you're looking at two hour movie with Batman. Right. So I mean, it'll be six hours. So I, I'm coming in strong and I'm going in the order. Of my, that's the order of my favorites, Batman, then Indiana Jones and then Ghostbusters. Yeah. yeah so I'm yeah. going in that order. And see, I'm, I'm going the opposite. See, I'm, 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 but I'm like you, that's, I would go Ghostbusters two first just to kind of get, you know, it's kind of fun. Then I'm going Indiana Jones, last crusade. Then I'm going to close it out with Batman because that's the most iconic of the three for me. But I'm I'm with Laramie. Uh, Last Crusade is probably my favorite Indiana Jones movie for sure. Um, I've I've never been a big fan of Temple of Doom, and Raiders is good, but it 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 lags, it it drags in a lot of spots. It's too long in some spots for me. But I think they got the formula right for the third one. Indiana's what we called the dog. Um, Junior. Yeah. Yep, yep. All right, so Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 72% tomato meter, 84% audience score. IMDb's got it 7.5 out of 10 with a 69 on Metacritic. Yeah, 72, 70 yeah. is too low. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with 84. Yeah, 84 yeah. is pretty good. Yeah, low 80s. Yeah. Definitely more more uh, appropriate. Yeah. I n- no, the exact number for this movie, 89. <laughs> <laughs> it should be 89. How did I miss that? Right, right. I, I can't. Hey, I'm I'm there with you. That that sums it up perfectly. So, all right, gentlemen. Well, it's been a fun one. Anything else you want to add before we completely wrap up our Batman '89 episode? No, uh, just I am the night, and I am ready to go to bed. <laughs> yeah, it's getting late. So, all right. Well, Laramie, tell us what's going on with moving panels. What you got coming up now that you finished the Swamp Thing, March Madness? What's April looking like for moving panels? Uh, you were. St- I'm still in a toss-up about a few things. Um, uh, you and I have talked about possibly doing the movie Two Guns. Yep. Uh, which is based off of a, 
a comic book, which I was something I actually didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you actually informed me of that. Uh, I've got uh, New Mutants with uh, James Brooks um, to talk about. I still got to finish up the uh, Mandrake the Magician. Right. Uh, one movie, shots. Yeah, movie serial, and uh, get to the end of those. But um, it just, uh, uh, you know, I'm always out there just trying to find out what's interesting, what's new, and, um, and you know, what, what people want to talk about. Very cool. Ron, you got big plans for April? <laughs> traveling pan, uh, plans. You know, I'm traveling uh, uh, all over the place. Yeah. I, next weekend, I got St. Louis, and then I got uh, a couple weeks after that, Miami, and then um, West Virginia. So every couple of weeks, I'm somewhere. Yep, yep. Well, I do appreciate you both being on the podcast. I haven't, this is my first time doing two co hosts together. And we got big plans for uh, Back to the Future uh, coming up in June. We'll have a few more added to the list. And so uh, that'll be a fun uh, couple episodes. So we'll give you more details about that coming up. We'll make sure you uh, like the podcast, follow us, rate us, review us, all that fun stuff, which I know you guys do. Appreciate you checking us out. So I have one line left to say, and that's if you got to go, go with a smile. Thank you guys for being a part, and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we have a few ways for you to do just that. One way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message through the Anchor app. You can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. Hey, and while you're there, be sure to check out the episode show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Well, that's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s Flick Flashback. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.